Wow, this new venture of the Questions You Didn't Ask podcast is an exciting endeavor for me and those from my team who work behind the scenes. We are learning and growing, getting better and better by the day. Nothing motivates us more than hearing from our audience about how much these series mean to them and how much you all enjoy them. We will keep bringing you great discussions. We just ask that you share the love with your family, friends, and people in your network. Another thing that I want our audience to know is that we are all working parents and family members. That includes me, the host, the producers, and most of our guests. So if you hear background noise that most of us call life or an oversized puppy causing a racket at the right wrong time, then please charge it to our culture of grace, gratitude, and realness where we encourage everyone involved to come as you are. Now, moving in the content for today. As many of you know, the issue of reproductive justice is front and center in the media pertaining to the Supreme Court's leaked decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and effectively make abortion rights a state issue. Alongside this monumental event, there have been multiple mass shootings of both innocent adults and children. The political platform of the popularized pro-life movement and pro-gun Second Amendment supporters has always been a challenge for me to wrap my head around. So I started digging to have a more nuanced conversation with our guest today, Dr. Willie Parker. But before we get into that, let me set the stage for this discussion. I want to shed some light on some key concepts that we will discuss. One concept that you will hear a lot in our conversation is patriarchy. So what is patriarchy? According to Fabian Albuquerque, patriarchy is a political, economic, and cultural ideological system based on the power and domination of men over women through the belief that the former possesses greater intellectual, biological, and material superiority. Patriarchy has orderly social structures affecting politics, economics, culture, science, and religion. This type of oppression is ever present across cultures and ethnicities for generations. With this in mind, I want to ask some questions that have been on my mind to a brother in the struggle for justice. Questions about the health and well being of women and girls as it relates to our proximity to men and boys who are also suffering in the depths of patriarchy. Another term that is discussed is toxic masculinity. What is it? Well, toxic masculinity as defined by Terry Coopers is the constellation of socially regressive male traits that serve to foster domination, the devaluation of women, homophobia, and wanton violence. Not all masculinity is toxic and not all males are toxic, which was one of the reasons I was motivated to bring in a brother who is a feminist that has been dedicating his life to also affirming black feminism and the health and well-being of women who have decided to have an abortion. Well then, what is black feminism? Black feminism centers the experience of Black women understanding their position in relation to racism, sexism, and classism, as well as other social and political identities. 
Black women have been excluded from mainstream feminism because of their race, while simultaneously being excluded from Black liberation movements because of their gender. How is all of this connected to health equity and especially reproductive justice? Well, let's get a better understanding of reproductive justice and then jump into the conversation. Sister Song defines reproductive justice as the human right to maintain personal bodily autonomy, have children, not have children, and parent the children we have in safe and sustainable communities. Reproductive justice is not just about reproductive rights. It also encompasses access to evidence-based and community-informed reproductive health education and equitable access to family planning and birth control, which includes abortion services. Reproductive justice also includes the provision of comprehensive prenatal health care that supports the healthy growth and development of both the mother and child, as well as the father and other parental figures that will support the life of the child. Reproductive justice also upholds the family and community by supporting and nurturing the life, health, and well-being of the child and caregivers. With these concepts in mind, I'm sure you can now understand why I cannot understand people who reject reproductive justice but call themselves pro-life and are also adamant about not protecting our community from people, policies, and practices that put our family members and children in danger, namely gun control measures. So without any further ado, let us dive into this discussion so that we can uncover some answers to the questions we don't usually ask. I'm excited to introduce our guest for this episode, uh, Dr. Willie Parker. Willie Parker is an alum of the University of Ohio College of Medicine, the University of Cincinnati Residency and OBGYN, the Harvard School of Public Health, the UCSF, that's University of California, San Francisco Preventive Medicine Residency, and the University of Michigan Fellowship in Family Planning. He now serves as medical director of both Little Rock Family Planning Services in Little Rock, Arkansas, and also provides abortion in Seattle, Washington, and Las Vegas, Nevada. He proudly served as Queen Emma Clinic attending and OBGYN faculty at JABSM from 2002 to 2006. He is board certified in obstetrics and gynecology, fellowship trained in complex contraception and family planning, and trained in preventive medicine and epidemiology through the Centers for Disease Control. Dr. Parker is also author of the book, Life's Work, A Moral Argument for Choice, which is available on Amazon. Thank you so much, Dr. Parker, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And the Iowa Hawkeye fans would be uh, upset if I didn't say uh, my uh, my uh, alumni institution is the University of Iowa, uh, as opposed to Ohio. Uh, but uh, go Hawkeyes. All right, got to represent for those for the, for our colleges, our alumni organizations. I'm a strong believer in that. They put so much into us and form us in such special ways. Um, and so, before we get started, Dr. Parker, would you tell me a little bit about why is it that you chose to say yes to my invitation to be a part of this discussion? 
Well, I think uh, the opportunities to have uh, discussions that create light as opposed to heat uh, on the issues that are relevant of the day always get my attention. Uh, and I've always been interested in creating content that can make us uh, think about life in ways that will allow us to create systems of equity and humanity. And so your show, uh, your pitch to me about having conversations uh, that we need to be talking about uh, uh, resonated with me. Also, the cultural context in which it's happening, you are a woman of color asking the kind of questions I think we need to be having in our community so that we can empower ourselves to, to advocate for the change that we need to see. All that resonated with me. And so I'm a vibe person. And when you, you when you approached me, I was drawn to your project and I said, yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you for saying yes. Um, I know that you're a very busy person. So am I, so is our audience. And But this is a special, special time and a special topic. Um, and before we get into kind of the, the light of it, as you said, as opposed to the heat of it, I'm going to kind of back us up a little bit because for some of my listeners um, and followers, they know that um, a big part of my public health career started in HIV AIDS um, research. And as such, I was drawn directly to um, serving Black women and girls that are affected and impacted by HIV AIDS. I was recently invited to be to speak to the Presidential Advisory Council on HIV AIDS. And at that time, we were really focused on women and girls and Black women and girls. And a question came to me. And one of the things that I said was that when advocating for the health and well-being of women and girls, um, one of the best things we can do to help them is to also help heal and ensure that men and boys are happy, healthy, and whole. What is your take on this perspective? Well, right off the bat, I can say I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, in my 30 plus years as a women's health provider, I eventually came to conclude that uh, how women's uh, lives and how their families are constructed oftentimes are shaped by who they're partnered with. Uh, and I know that's uh, say I say that in a, in a, in a heteronormative sense uh, about male and female relationships. Uh, but I think uh, part, the, the partnering and the structuring of the family is as much a social determinant of health as where people live, what they eat, and how much education they have. And so when I began to think about the relationships between men and women and, and family construction and a public health context, I look at my work, my increasingly work that I've done and the work that I plan to do more so uh, as uh, primary prevention work with regard to the health of women. Now, when we look at uh, prevention is a core public health tenant, and then when you can't do prevention, hopefully you can do an intervention to alleviate suffering and injury. And then when you can't do either prevention or intervention, your next thing is to do harm reduction. So, for example, if we think that uh, drug uh, uh, 
recreational drug use is dangerous. Uh, you know, we want to give out the social marketing and the public health messages that say, you know, recreational drugs have more risk than benefit. Uh, and so we then uh, want to have interventions, whether you're talking about treatment, but uh, it, it, and I don't see a laws and criminalizing drug use as an intervention. I see it as a peril and a, and a hazard. But if people are going to use drugs uh, and you, you, the preventive message doesn't get through to those people that it didn't get through to, the next step would be to do harm reduction. So that would be if people are doing IV drugs with the attendant risks associated with that, you want to institute a needle exchange program. A needle exchange program to help people get clean needles. Are you advocating or saying, yeah, go ahead and use drugs? No, you're saying if you're going to use and if we can't uh, appeal to you to not use, let's see if we can reduce harm. I think about the relationships between men and women uh, and structure of families the same way. You know, people are partnering in all sorts of circumstances for all kinds of reasons. And, you know, we want to have strongly structured families that are healthily constructed. But sometimes people get together and they have intimate partner violence. And so while we might try and get do create interventions, batters, interventions program, shelters and all of that, we also have to figure out how to do harm reduction. Uh, and so uh, I see how we work with men uh, with the understanding that healthy men don't harm women, they don't harm themselves, and they don't harm each other. And so uh, I think when people are looking for where men are, I think uh, they are essential to the health of women and girls. That's exactly right. I mean, in, in my opinion, you know, it's, it's, it's the fact that we, whether we're heterosexual or not, right? We are interacting with each other and we are interacting with each other in a number of different ways and a number of different capacities. Um, and if we are both healthy and whole and happy, then we can interact with each other in ways that do not put us at risk of, like you said, intimate partner violence or a variety of other things, right. including unwanted sex unwanted right. pregnancies, things of that sort that that does kind of fall into that whole dynamic of being healthy. So one of the things that I found very interesting about you and your work is the fact that um, this idea of uh, Black feminism is something that um, has shown up in your work and um, has shown up in terms of the way that you speak about your own philosophy in regard to, you know, the women that you serve and the capacity in which you work. Can you tell our audience what does Black feminism mean to you and how it influences your work? Okay. Well, uh, the simple answer is the cliche is that, that feminism in general and Black feminism in particular is, is the radical notion that, that women are human beings, right? Uh, and so whether you modify that with the specific racial and cultural context of black women or feminism writ large, uh, women, the, I, the notion that women are human beings also introduce, uh, introduces an expectation that there are certain rights and privileges that they're entitled to that aren't conferred by the state, as Dr. King, Martin Luther King would say, uh, but the state has an obligation to preserve those rights and privileges for them. Uh, my, uh, my more nuanced understanding of feminism is that another person, Michael Hemmer, said that uh, his definition of feminism is that men and women are not equal, but they should be. So mm -hmm. that would be that creates 
uh, a work and an obligation around how do we resolve the disparity between life chances for people who are born uh, female in the society, in particular for people who are born, born uh, females of color, and in, in, in this case, Black females. Uh, the expectations that we have for the lives of uh, people born female start when a birth attendant like myself who did uh, obstetrics for over 20 years, when you look in at, at the anatomy of the, of the baby born and you look between its legs and you say, it's a boy or it's a girl, the societal expectations and the life chances are set into motion at that moment. Mothers or parents have expectations based on whether it's a boy or a girl. We have expectations of them societally based on the biologic sex and the gender role um, that are associated with that. Uh, so when I think about feminism and, and, and a, an applied sense and black feminism in particular, and I'll kind of get into the, the difference between feminism in general uh, and black feminism, uh, I think feminism is the social work or the political work where we endeavor to uh, make sure that a person's life chances and opportunities to thrive as a human being aren't determined by the fact that they were born female. And then that gets into the whole idea of whether or not there are barriers or advantages or disadvantages created on the basis of gender and sex. And then you open up a whole nother can of how men are privileged with regard to the term patriarchy. So uh, I, as I began to think about the life chances based on, on gender and sex, uh, a whole nother uh, uh, field of work with regard to black feminism uh, began to uh, inform and to challenge me around my consciousness and my way of walking through the world. And people say, okay, what is black feminism as opposed to feminism? Well, uh, black fe feminism, as I said, is the work to ensure or to, that life chances don't differ on the basis of gender or sex. Black feminism became the lens to force feminism uh, to look at uh, itself uh, with regard to the blind spots that it had regarding race, right? When we say feminism, we don't say white feminism, we say feminism and then we say black feminism, right? Because in a society that where white supremacy operates, uh, the referential group for best or accepted or uh, acknowledged is white. So to say white feminism for some would be redundant because what other kind of feminism is there? Well, there are all kinds, right? And in particular, the content of black feminism is all of the content of white feminism because in some ways white feminists learned their feminism in the abolitionist movement doing racial justice work. Um, black feminists uh, began to challenge the leaders of feminism and the various ways when white, when, when white women would speak to the issues that were unique to their life chances and say, we speak for all women and black women would say, how do you speak for all women when you haven't spoken to all women? So for example, the disparity of whether or not you know, white women were food secure and education secure and housing secure because they had spouses and family structures that provided for their basic needs. Black women on the other hand, due to racism and gender disparity outside the community as well as within the community, of, 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 of uh, the oppression of black women within the black community with uh, 
black male supremacy created the no, the uh, the need for black women to look uh, at the ways to empower themselves through activism to change the system that disadvantaged them on the basis of their sex, but also to stand in solidarity and to work alongside black men to work for the liberation of black people. So black feminism is everything that feminism or white feminism plus a critical racial analysis and the absence of any notion that the well-being of black women should occur in the absence of the well-being of black men. In mm. feminism writ large, sometimes the notion of feminism that uh, that that comes through, especially by radical feminists, is that men are the problem. Mm -hmm. And black feminism uh, looks at the racial analysis and said that black men and black women catch the same hell in a rape, white supremacist society. And so there was never any intent of black women to leave black men behind they were working mm -hmm. for the liberation of them both and so it was the whole idea that black women in black feminism became clear that men weren't the problem patriarchy is the problem right mm -hmm. and so it became the notion of let's dismantle hostile and toxic systems and not necessarily uh attack the people caught up in them in that case in the case of black women it's like you know our brothers, our husbands, our lovers, they're being lynched, like we're being lynched sometimes more than us. Uh, so let's, we don't, in order to stop our oppression at the hands of the social, the societal structure, uh, as well as stopping our hands at the, at the our abuse at the hands of abusive black men who are parenting and mimicking patriarchal practices in society writ large, uh, we have a, 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 a way of thinking about our liberation that is inclusive and that is uh, even before there was any notion of intersectional analysis, that newer term, mm -hmm. but they were able to think about race and class and gender in the complicated ways that were necessary to come up with the solutions that were going to liberate everybody. Yes, 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 yes. Um, you brought up one of my favorite terms, intersectionality, which from what I understand was developed um, by a Black woman, um, and that you also mentioned the fact that our liberation of Black women and Black men are tied up together, right? Um, right? The idea that, you know, there was this one drop rule. So even if a Black woman had a child with someone that was not Black in our society, it was considered Black. And especially if that child was a male, then you have a mother Black mother and a Black son. And so our um, liberation is tied up together. Uh, one of the lectures that I give at UNC on HIV AIDS is about the African-American community and how even as we're thinking about um, partnering in this culture and society, um, African-Americans are most likely um, to partner together and not to mix. Now, of course, there is mixing, but a lot of that is due to our historic and cultural context in this country, which um, allow for us to oftentimes be murdered, raped, and abused for embarking on any type of romantic relationship outside of our race. Um, and that could even be in, inflicted on a person that was not black, who was interested and dedicated and in love with a person of color, they could also experience um, jail, prison time and things like that. 
just for that. Um, so what we find is that Black women in particular, Black men maybe, um, I don't know how you feel about this, but historically we are bound up together with Black men because where else are we going to go? Um, our historical and societal and cultural um, uh, uh, dialogue um, that is white supremacist um, and centers whiteness um, does not value Black women. Um, and even to the extent of not finding us beautiful and attractive or even um, able to be marketed um, in, a, in a certain way. And I'm not here to say that Black women or myself wants to be objectified sexually. I think that what I'm talking about is um, understanding um, value and also understanding who values us and um, where we find value, which is within our Black community. And it is also not to disrespect anyone, including my family members, who have interracial relationships. Um, I just believe that what you spoke on as it relates to Black feminism is very um, important to speak on. It's not that Black women necessarily want to separate themselves from men or from white women or women of other races. It is the fact that socially, culturally, and historically, we have been separated and therefore our experiences are different and we have to draw light and attention to that in a unique way. What's interesting about what you're saying and the significance of, you know, uh, the interrelatedness and when I look at all of this uh, intersectionally, especially the notion of race and the fact that race is a social construct, there's nothing biologically rigorous about it. Uh, and I think uh, uh, skin color has become a proxy for white supremacy in the thoughts. So if you if you don't start with the notion of of a hierarchical relationship on the basis of skin color or gender, um, uh, one uh, Gloria Steinem, who wrote a cover for my book, gave me a bracelet the first time I met her that simply said it was somebody else's quote, but she put it together. It says, "Imagine if we were linked and not ranked." and mm. talking about the relationships between human beings. And one of the things about white supremacy and patriarchy and a lot of other systems of oppression is that they're very hierarchical. There's gotta be somebody on the top, there's gotta be somebody on the bottom. They're also very categorical. They have to be winners and losers. And so how that is played out and how it has to play out, if you create the mythology of black inferiority and white superiority, and if you look at race, from the, the way it's propagated biologically, most skin color is coded for by multiple genes, if you let me get in the weeds a little bit and talk about how we stratify by the basis of skin color. But uh, the, the reality is, and as you talked about the whole notion of who's black and who's white based on, 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 on the propagation rules, you know, the whole idea of miscegenation, there was no law against interracial marriage until after the Boxer Rebellion and indentured white folk who were serving alongside captured Africans yes. uh, from a class rebellion, the planter yes. class decided that, you know what, these people are getting too comfortable with each other. They're marrying each other and mm -hmm. they're having babies. And so the 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 aristocracy is shrinking in con in comparison mm -hmm. to the 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 the, the, uh, the 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 peasants. And so, you know, when you look at 
who has a baby and how you classify that baby. The thing about the woman and the female in terms of the biologic reality that uh, women give birth and they are the primary nurturers, if you're structured where women is a primary caregiver, is that women and mothers are the cultural repositories for any culture that you're talking about. So when there's when you look at what's happening now with what's happening with Roe v. Wade, I know we might get into that a little bit later, but also with the whole notion of replacement theory and the, mm. the, the cultural vulnerability that that white people are feeling around obsolescence by skin color. Mm-hmm. The idea that the only person who can have a white baby is a white woman. And the only way she can have a white baby is with a white man, right? Because if a white woman has a baby with a man of color, that baby's not white, right? Mm-hmm. And if a black woman has a baby with a white man, that baby's not white. So the only people who can, if it's a numbers game and race is something biologic, which we know it's not, the whole notion of the uh, white replacement theory and the obsession and need to control the reproductive capacity of women about who should be having babies and who's not having enough of them, you know, all of this interplays with the notion of a notion of race and the construction of a system where one skin color is superior to another. And when you start to put all of this together, it starts to give light to how complex the solutions are going to be. All right. So when we think about the complex systems of oppression, even if our point of departure is about being black and female, when we we start with black women, most of us wear multiple identities and the way oppression works, especially systemic oppression with multiple uh, uh, points of oppression. If you're black, you're female, uh, you're poor or you're queer, the challenge becomes which of those identities are you most oppressed by? And so even if the point of departure again is with being black and female, if we're not thinking about these systems of oppression in complex ways, then we won't have durable and meaningful solutions to dismantle the oppression. You know, there's in in a in a white supremacist society, race is big. But when we talk about the declining significance of race, are we really saying that race doesn't matter, or are we saying that race has become a weaker proxy for other systems of oppression that interact in a way that race doesn't have to be as significant if class and gender are looming larger than they used to? Mm. Gender and class are looming larger than they used to. That's an interesting perspective. Um, I definitely hear people talking a lot more about class wars. I definitely hear people, especially as it relates to this um, topic of reproductive justice. Um, and and obviously, in this case of reproductive justice, um, gender is very much there um, at the center and core. And so with that, I mean, you bringing up so many good points, good juicy conversation, um, and I appreciate it so can much. I, yeah, as uh, can I can I challenge you and push back a little bit, Nayasha? Is it yeah, Nayasha about Nayasha. So, Nayasha, I'm sorry. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not a pushback as much as uh, opening another can of worms. Mm. When you when you say when we talk about reproductive justice, part of what is the red herring or the pigeonhole is. Reproduction often connotes female or feminine because most of the mm-hmm. methods at controlling or trying to uh, empower 
women and females to control their life destiny, which is what my central life work is about as an abortion provider, implies that reproduction, reproduction in, or reproductive implies female, as if mm -hmm. men don't have reproductive needs or if families aren't constructed in a in biologically with the yes. choices of males and females, because no matter how much we work at cloning or doing assisted reproductive technology, at the end of the day, it's still an egg and a sperm. And yes. to my knowledge right now, only males produce sperm and, and females produce eggs. So when we talk about reproduction, we kind of defaulted to that primary responsibility of falling to a female or a woman, because we also say since she's carrying the pregnancy, all of the responsibility falls on her. When I was a kid growing up in the South, they said mama's baby, daddy's maybe, right? There you go. Mm -hmm. And so then we get into this whole thing about what is the responsibility of a male or uh, a man or a black man to be a father or what is his responsibility when someone tells them they're pregnant. So right. part, part of the notion of reproductive justice being primarily about and for uh, uh, black women, uh, the conveners of that concept would look at the fact that uh, black families are constructed by black men and black women. And if it's rooted in black feminism, it is the understanding that it's not a zero sum game. Yes, all of that. And you led me into my next question. Um, how does black male reproductive power and reproductive control relate to health equity? Well, that's a very, very good question. Uh, I would say um, a rough cut uh, about the role of of, of uh, uh, black men and black males in reproductive power and control is that they're 50% of the procreative equation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can't have black families or uh, you can't have families of any color without uh, the cooperation of a uh, of a male and a female or a man and a woman uh, biologically uh, coming together to uh, procreate. Uh, and so how they do that and when they do that and in what context ha is influenced in part by black men perceive how they perceive their reproductive capacity uh, and as well as their ability or their need to control their reproduction. Because for some of us, because we are so marginalized and vilified and uh, don't aren't afforded the opportunity to find meaning in our lives. Otherwise, for some of us, the most essential way that we can demonstrate that we were ever here on the planet is that we reproduce mm -hmm. someone who looks like us or someone who, who could claim us as their father. And so that means that how we think about our reproduction and what it means to us and whether it's an empowering or whether it's a, a, a crippling uh, depends on, um, again, uh, what it means to us as individuals to reproduce. If we're feeling like life is grand and that we are productive and we have something to give and to leave, some of us want to father children as legacy. Uh, some of us, if we feel we have nothing to give and to leave or we feel vulnerable like we're going to die early, we want to procreate before we leave so that there'll be something that says we were here. And so mm -hmm. uh, it's a very complex uh, question. It also goes to the notion of what constitutes my manhood to the degree that I'm able to 
biologically reproduce mm. and to be mature. But then uh, am I a man if I can't take care of the, 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 the offspring that I reproduce? You know, mm. and so it that goes into what what is the significance of my reproducing on my access to resources, whether they're distributed equitably or not? And what does that mean to my reproductive life goals? Will I connect my ability to procreate to my ability to provide for the for the children I procreate? Um, and 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 does that validate me as a man? Uh, my reproductive control and power also with regard to uh, one of the the the, the lowest uh, use of vasectomy as one of the means of controlling fertility for men. One of the lowest rates of vasectomy in the world are here in the United States and in, in Sub-Saharan mm -hmm. Africa, and that's 1%. And of the men who mm -hmm. do get it, the lowest number of men who get a vasectomy um, it occurs for Black men. Mm -hmm. Part of that is related to Black men. When you say sterility, they hear impotence. And mm -hmm. so they equate their inability to father children with their inability to perform sexually. So that has implications for their aspirations, but then when you tie back to who women, Black women primarily partner with uh, or who they procreate with, it has implications for the reproductive aspirations of Black women. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, and not to imply that Black women have to be limited to Black men, but in large part, when they partner and procreate, that's who it's with, even if our rates of marriage are, are very low. Mm -hmm. So, the sense of our vulnerability as a community starts to affect how we as men look at our reproductive capacity and our reproductive responsibilities. And so uh, to the degree that we feel empowered uh, uh, to control our fertility, that has everything to do with whether or not the current scientific efforts to produce uh, reversible methods of contraception are going to be successful and how we are going to distribute them. Um, I think uh, there are some Black men, especially ones who uh, who uh, are thriving financially, who worry about their inability to control their fertility, leaving mm -hmm. them vulnerable to be entrapped by someone who mm -hmm. looks at them as, a, as an economic opportunity if they can have a baby for them. So mm -hmm. it's a, let me, to... I can go on and on, but I'll just say it's a it's a mixed bag, and it has you know at, like most things, it's uh, intersectional. <laughs> a term yes. that you can use. So, in your work, do you find, and I think that you're already answering this question a little bit, but just to dig a little deeper, in your work, do you find that men feel completely comfortable leaving birth control measures up to women solely? Um, uh, the it 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 depends. I think um, whether they feel comfortable or not, many of them do. And given that they only have three options, uh, men can either use condoms as a barrier, to, you know, to prevent disease, but also to prevent pregnancy. They can get a vasectomy, or they can they can be cooperative with their partners in their effective use of female-based contraception. Mm -hmm. uh, the reality is condoms are 85% effective, but that, you know, that's a hot for somebody to motivate to use them properly. They're effective uh, in that regard. I think men feel vulnerable, uh, mm -hmm. again, depending on their aspirations, but also 
men also uh, their 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 expectations are set by the reality that they have very little that they personally can do. Mm. So I think there are men who don't want to uh, leave it up to uh, women, especially if they have means, and their perception is that you're just trying to get in my my sack. You're a sack chaser, as the terminology goes. Um, but I think there are men who whose motivations are otherwise. There are men who would like to share responsibility. There are men who have concerns about the, the, the health of their partner and the different risks and benefits of different methods, and they would like to share that responsibility if they could. Um, so I think uh, it depends on where that man's head is. Uh, mm-hmm. No pun intended. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> But with regard to you know, is he thinking more communally? And he's thinking about I'm gonna uh, uh, I'm gonna take care of my responsibility to not uh, uh, create uh, pregnancies that I don't want or are not ready for. Uh, and I think also that's colored by, as I said, the three methods that they have are condoms, uh, vasectomy, and partner cooperation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, the 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 the. Uh, vasectomy is permanent right even though mm. hypothetically you can reverse a vasectomy uh, and and that raises the question of whether or not people are interested in not procreating or whether or not they're simply interested in spacing the pregnancies that they want to create if you're interested only in spacing a vasectomy is not the thing you want to do because you have to consider it permanent and yet we don't have any long-acting reversible methods of of contraception for men the way we do for women um, mm-hmm. So I think, you know, again, the expectations are set by what's possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that means that uh, there are men who are interested and who are demanding methods of contraception so mm-hmm. they can share responsibility with a partner, but also so that they can take primary responsibility for their own health and not mm-hmm. not have a pregnancy that they're not ready for. Very, very interesting. You know, I was going to ask you, do you think men want or need more agency as it relates to birth control? But I think that you've talked about that. Could you share any more about the space of advocacy for the development of birth control that men can utilize? Well, or is there? of that going on there there is uh you know for the i've been a family planning expert now for over almost 20 years after Mm -hmm. i did a fellowship in context methods of contraception family planning and abortion care and for the last 30 years or so we've always been five years away from having a male birth Mm. control pill you know right now we're looking at gels and uh reversible injections and pills but we're looking for things that we're, we're pretty effective at stopping sperm production, but the real challenge is for having a reversible method to turn it back on. And so mm. increasingly, uh, the science is progressing uh, and uh, the capacity to have contraception for men uh, to empower them, but to, uh, to empower them to participate and share responsibility with women. The indirect benefit for women is that their burden wouldn't fall solely to them. Mm-hmm. But then there's the whole notion, the still there's the negotiation piece of who's using what, how much trust, should we be doubly protected? Should we each be taking responsibility? If we're each uh, using a method, 
how will we distribute access to those methods in terms of will the contraception be free? Will we feel the same way about providing birth control to men as mm. we do about women? Because there's the mm -hmm. whole notion of ableism. You know, a man, his ability is, you know, should be to get his own supplies and products. But with a woman, we're interested in preventing her pregnancy because if she's on public assistance, we're interested in her not creating more public charges. Uh, mm. For a man, we feel like we're just uh, subsidizing his sexual pleasure and freedom. So it's going to depend on when we do have methods, how will it be looked at uh, in terms of the distribution and access to them? It's also going to come down to who will use it. You know, if black men and black people are feeling vulnerable and feeling mm -hmm. like efforts to curb their reproduction is disproportionate to other people, will they feel like even when they are not ready for a pregnancy, will they feel like birth control methods are being hoisted upon them mm -hmm. uh, if there's a capacity? So uh, there's a whole bunch to look at and to, to ask. There's the other piece about research and development and industry. You know, if there are about 15 methods of contraception for women, who's going to develop one for men? And if you develop it for a man, are you cutting into your market of products for women? You know, so there's mm. the, the the whole capitalist economic aspect of it. So, again, it's intersectional. Not that anybody's mm. paying me to use that word. <laughs> no, no one is paying either one of us to use that word. And yet here we are. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Questions You Didn't Ask with me, Naisha Frey, and my guest this week, Dr. Willie Parker. Tune in next week as our conversation continues.